Welcome to another episode of Good Neighbor Podcast. I'm Jesse Sedirgo, and today I'm going to be taking you into my classroom that I teach, which is a class called Ministry in the Margins. And in this class, I go through a passage in scripture that is uh, near and dear to my heart because it's really part of the basis of how I view my theology around poverty and the church's role in engaging in socioeconomic diversity. And so I start in 1 Corinthians 11 and no, it is not on head coverings in worship. We're going to go right to 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. And uh, before we get into the lecture part, I just want to set it up because I actually don't start off with the passage, which I probably should have. And um, it, it gets into a passage that is Paul's rebuke to the church in, in Corinth. See, the church in Corinth were having a lot of divisions and a lot of disunity. And actually, in my mind, when I think about this disunity, when I was growing up reading this passage, I would have thought a lot about like, you know, different theological positions on things or different kind of giftings that people have. But in 1 Corinthians 11, um, it's a passage that I heard like every month month when I was growing up because it focuses on uh, the Eucharist, the the Holy Communion, uh, where it says, you know, for I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He did the same um, after the supper when he took the cup saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And and as you probably remember, if you were um, going to church, uh, you probably would have heard them say, you know, whoever eats this bread in uh, or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. And I remember at that time, I'd be thinking, okay, what are the sins that I have committed this week? You know, was there any, uh, you know, did I covet? Did I, did I, did I think lustful thoughts? You know, did I have angry, you know, feelings inside of me? But actually this passage, when you look at the context of it, it wasn't actually talking about all those, you know, moral failings. When you look before that passage in, you know, verse 17 to uh, 22, Paul is actually rebuking a bunch of rich people in the church for having what he called these private suppers. Now, so imagine here for a moment, you got church going on and as they're about to take communion, communion would happen in a meal. Right. It wouldn't just be a little wafer and some Welch's juice as it was in my actually it was Wonder Bread, not a wafer Um, in my church growing up. I love that Wonder Bread. I always ate the leftovers um, after church. Uh, So anyways, I got that uh, picture in my mind of that's what communion is. But in this context, it's around a meal. And at that time, they had a bunch of the the wealthier people or the hosts of the the bigger house that the church would be meeting in. And they'd be having supper before anyone even got there. Uh, They'd have supper before they Uh, anyone got there and they had the Eucharist before anyone got there too. And they would get full and they'd get drunk on, on wine. And that's why Paul rebukes them and says, you know, like when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. So he's saying the church, you think you're having the Eucharist, but you're not. And the reason why you're not is that when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and the other gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Uh, Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. And then that's when he says, for I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. So 
you know, the lecture I'm going to give here right now is just kind of giving and framing the context of Paul's rebuke and, and just trying to picture in our mind what it would look like for, for example, um, particular example, actually slave and master being in the same church. Like you have a slave coming to church and the master showing up at the same place. How mind-blowing that would have been for the master, how mind-blowing that would be for the slave to have to share a meal together or do things on an equal playing field. I mean, that's how revolutionary the church was at that time is that it was dividing all these, you know, cultural norms. And so as this, as this lecture kind of starts off, I just go straight into it and just describe how Paul is basically describing the, the difference, the, the, the things that are happening in that culture at the time that are beyond, uh, you know, theological um, divisions or differences at that time. So I hope you enjoy um, the rest of this 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 lecture and uh, get something out of that. All right. See you later. So when Paul responds to what is occurring in Corinth, he he actually hears more than the diverse views on theology, uh, tradition, and morality. Because when we read the Bible, we're thinking, okay, Paul is referring to theology, the tradition, and maybe morality. We think those are the hot topics, but not really, because in this situation, he is hearing when he's uh, examining Corinth, he's hearing the material reality you know, of perhaps shifting gender roles or like the, the cultural clash clashes or socioeconomic disparity or perhaps master and slave relations, all issues that have existed well before the introduction of any church community. So if any, before Jesus came, all these things already existed before. In fact, it is reasonable to assume that such material forces would have had greater influence on the actions of these members than the fledging, fledgling theological positions they would have had. Although new beliefs can influence one's actions, instincts and reflexes are molded and determined by one's social location. So I'm basically saying is that Paul is not addressing necessarily something that has brewed up in the church and the church created this division and they're eating here and the others are eating in the atrium. That, that's a culture, that's just what was. And so a lot of the times when Paul is speaking, he's not only speaking to like sins in that way, but he's talking about the, the, the structure of how society is, is made and how it's built up together. Um, so I want to ask this question is how, how does uh, a slave hear Paul's letter? For example, if you're the lower tier, if you're the slave or you're an artisan or you're a laborer or you're any of these different profiles that I'm going to give some of you over here who are on the who would have been eating outside of that, you know, holy of holies of place where they're having the dining uh, area and feasting. If you're one of those people, when reading Paul's letter, if you're the reference to slavery or the left reference to bondage or the reference to freedom, they carry a significant meaning to both the slaves and the patrons, by the way. The patrons are people who are like the masters, the people who are above. To both of them, when they're hearing that message, those words like slave mean so much more to, the, to, to them than it does to us. We symbolize everything, right? When we hear slave, we're like, yeah, oh, like, you know, a slave is conceptually someone who serves and does that thing. But we don't fully know what slavery means in the same context unless you've been through that 
situation of having that power dynamic so instilled in your culture. So imagine the complexities uh, that would have occurred when both slave and his or her master found themselves joining in a common movement, right? They both happen to hear it in different contexts and suddenly they show up in the same meeting. They're like, whoa, <laughs> Jesus, I thought you were all about the poor and why is this master here? <laughs> or like the master is saying, you know, this is the, this is the new message that I'm so, I, I, I feel so, it feel, means so much to me. And yes, we're, we're supposed to be with the poor, but not my slave though, like that's not gonna happen, right? So think of the awkward tension that would have been felt hearing the exhortations and encouragement that redefined the conduct of their professional relationship. You know, ponder the grueling grind of reorienting those power dynamics within a community so steeped, uh, deeply steeped in the oppressive cultural narrative. Reading this letter through the lens of a patron client relation reveals the cultural, social class, uh, socioeconomic divisions that Paul had in mind as he wrote these letters. And today I hope to highlight the robust meaning behind Paul's word by imagining the weighty implications it had on the patron-client relationships of the first century. As oppression remains present in every generation, including here today, Paul's presentation of an alternative form of rich and poor relations is instructive in the way that we can navigate the power dynamics within socioeconomically diverse congregations today. And so in that time, it was, it was just normal. Like to understand the relational dynamics within the book of 1 Corinthians, it is vital to understand the impact the patronage system uh, had on everyday interactions in Corinth. Uh, someone by the name of John uh, K. Chow says that if, a quote, if patron patronage forms such an important part of life in Roman Corinth, it would be most unrealistic to expect that the Christians there be wholly untouched by its influence and to behave in a completely new way immediately after their conversion, right? Out of their conversion suddenly, oh, I don't really need a slave anymore. No, it's not going to happen like that. On the contrary, sorry, that was my that was my line. Back to the quote. And a quote, on the contrary, it is most likely that patronage would become the background for understanding the relational ties in the church and some of the problems Paul discusses in 1 Corinthians. So as you think about like doing papers on this or think about this further as you read other parts of scripture, that's what I want you to do. I want you to think back a little bit about what is the backdrop that created these instinctual, uh, habitual ways of interacting that preceded conversion, that preceded the church's involvement. And so it was widespread. The patronage system was widespread in the Roman Empire, but did not look the same in every city. As would be the case with any colony, the system worked itself out in a manner that catered to the age and the culture and the economics of Corinth in particular, if we're talking here. So it's, under, it's important to understand Corinth and, and, and what it was, because Corinth was, it was a, a new colony uh, with new immigrants. And I quote, uh, he says, cut off from the supportive communities and particular traditions. So Corinth was unique in that it had a bunch of people who were like making like a new a new world for themselves. So if they were slaves or if they did have some kind of history in the background where they were like um, a part of a deeply steeped like um, tradition in a certain way and had a certain ranking in that society, Corinth 
even though it still had that, gave them an opportunity to try to be a new me or try to redefine myself a little bit. And not like the way we see it today. It was much more limited back then. So that's a very unique thing about Corinth. It's like a bunch of people coming from different places. And it was comprised and composed of a number of like disparate groups and and opportunities available in Corinth would have attracted people from a variety of economic and social backgrounds. So although Corinth provided slaves and the poor with new opportunity, the patriot system uh, was still very much in effect. But see, when you hear a passage, so for example, in a passage like Galatians, in Galatians, where it literally has a lot of slave talk in Galatians, all right? If you look in Galatians 4, 1 to 7, if you want to open up that, I'm not going to read it right now, but you can refer to it as I, I'm, I'm sharing about it here. But in Galatians 4, chapter 1 to 7, uh, chapter 4, 1 to 7, Paul puts a, he puts a spin on this patronage uh, client dynamic. So instead of a master who uses the tactics of co uh, coercion to reclaim the services of his former slave, God invites the slave back into the fold of the household, but under an honorable status, which is an heir. So he gives this picture of like, okay, imagine a slave is out in the field, you know, doing certain work as a slave would be doing. Imagine if the master comes to the slave and says, calls out to the slave and says, come, come to the house and have a meal with us uh, at our table. That's number one, a huge deal for that to happen. So he calls the slave into the table and says, you can eat with us. You can be now with us. That's a, that's a huge thing. That's, this is the relationship he's describing as Jew and Gentile. He's saying to the Jew and to say, he's saying to the Gentile, if you feel far away because you're not in the, in the covenantal relationship as Jews, if you feel far away, it's like a slave, he's giving this example, and you are coming back into, into the fold, into the covenantal relationship of Jews here, when you come in here, there's something significant is going to happen. You're going to be a part of us. You're going to be a, as part of our family. And that's one thing, being invited to the table. Number two, saying that you're going to be a brother and a sister now is another level. That's like going to another step where you're saying to a slave, you're not only a slave, but you're going to be a part of the family. That's a huge step again. And then to go even further to say, but you are now going to be an heir. Okay, you're not just a brother and sister, but what comes with being a part of the family is you are going to get part of the inheritance. The jump and the distance from out in the field as a slave to inside the family to you're going to get a piece of the pie. Number one, the rest of the people in the family are saying, hey, you're taking a piece out of my inheritance. That's not cool. Uh, but number two is that you're getting a piece of that as someone. And so when you hear that distance and what Paul is doing, Paul in that passage is flipping the script of this patronage system that is, and using that example, which is, would have been very provocative, not only for the Gentile who feels like far from being a part of this Jewish sect that was called Christianity, not only is that the example, which we only see tend to see when we see scripture. Okay, scripture is just about the Gentiles coming in the fold with the with this Jewish sect, which is Christianity. We think that is the whole own narrative. But then when he uses these different symbols and these metaphors in order to bring that point home, something important happens there. And so Paul argues that Jews under the law are no different than Gentiles. He even says that. So if, he's, if you're doing this ranking, he says that, you know, God sent his son to redeem those under the law in, uh, in, in verse five. Slaves were adopted to sonship 
as a child of God, his or her old status has been terminated, not on paper, but in function in general. So more to say on that, but that Galatians passage, I think is a good kind of way to see how he uses slave and patron relationships in this. And so what's important about the first Corinthians passage. And so my hope is that if you all read this, I don't have to go over with you about what all happened, but just to synthesize for some of you, if, if it wasn't present in your mind, um, if you read first Corinthians 11, you will see that Paul was upset at the church and he was rebuking them because it was a bunch of people who were, um, there was a few people in the church who were the rich and the wealthy who were having their private suppers. All right. They were having their private suppers in another place uh, in the home away from those who were, uh, who didn't have much. And the reason why they didn't have much. And as we can see um, in the papers that you were sent is that they didn't have, they couldn't have much. Cause number one, the people who came to eat, first were the people who were rich. Now, why do you think the people came uh, who ate first were the rich? Um, because people who are rich at that time had a lot of passive time that they could have. They weren't working throughout the day as artisans or laborers or whatnot. They had a lot of luxury and time. So they were coming, bringing the major, majority of the food and, and eating. And by the time people coming, they literally ate most of the food and they're getting drunk. So in a way, it's not necessarily that they're, everyone came at the same time and then the, the, the masters went this way and the slaves or, or the poor went that way. It's like, because they had different times in which they came, right? And so number one, we have to see is that there is a, there's, a, there's, there's certain things in your, say in our congregations today, where certain people get in early and they have priority and there is a sense of othering people, not because they're like, they're horrible and they want to other people. It's just by, by the fact that they have the luxury of time and you can symbolize that all you want in, in many different ways. They just ate, like they weren't thinking intentionally, I'm just gonna leave the scraps. Perhaps maybe they were, they had a jerk there in the table, but like, they just didn't have enough and they are done and they're drunk and their wine. And then the rest of them get the scraps later because they come later at night. So when they come is important. Number two, where they came. So if you looked at the scene actually in a, in a regular house there in Corinth, you know, I don't have the exact picture of what it would look like exactly at that time in this particular context. But if you see the, uh, this diagram that I'll show you here in a moment, when you see this, kind of example, you'll, you'll note that, um, you guys see that? Thumbs up if you see it. All right, so it's not full screen, I don't think, but you'll see here, there was like the backyard, there was the atrium and pool, um, there was a reading room, and there was this uh, trachylinium, if I'm saying that right, probably not, but there's that, that's literally the small space that would that they would house the people to actually have the small meeting gathering. So literally there's not enough space for everyone to meet there, but see the atrium and the pool right there where you see everyone, that's where everyone would have been gathering that didn't fit into that little hole, that, that little club who was eating and getting drunk and getting, uh, doing all that. So that small room is just, you can't fit that many people. And that's where you eat. So that's what happens, right? So the context and like literally the physical structure did not allow for everyone to eat at the same time in that gathering, right? So everyone else just kind of 
had stayed on the outside. And by the way, last year's class, because we were in person, I literally did this exercise with them. I'm sorry you're not gaining the benefits of it this class, but that's what I did. Last year, we had a meal. It was a morning class, so we had breakfast together. So I had everyone come and it was a potluck. And what I did literally is I set up a table in the class, got like a tablecloth and everything and some silk, like chinaware, like all this different stuff and set up just for five people to eat. All right. And then I made everyone else go to the hallway outside, like literally outside of the classroom. And I made them wait. And so everyone, the five people who picked the right straws, who were like the wealthiest and who were the owner of the house and all that kind of stuff. They're the ones who actually um, ate first. And then I delayed everyone. So everyone had to wait. They came in afterwards to get some food. And I said, okay, after you get this food, you have to go back outside and eat. And all there is, is there's two chairs and the rest of you have to either stand around or sit on the ground. That's how I did it. And I asked everyone afterwards, um, like, how did you feel being eating outside and being left with just less food, you know, and not getting as good coffee and all this kind of stuff. I, I, gave, I literally made them different. <laughs> and so we did that last year just to kind of demonstrate this is like literally what was happening at that time. And so the Lord's Supper is a pragmatic way to demonstrate this Galatians passage. You know, with the model of the adoption and sonship in place, we will re-engage the text right now in 1 Corinthians to further understand how Christ reconciles patron and slave through the supper table. The passage in Galatians, let me just unshare the screen here. The passage in Galatians would have engaged this patron slave on a personal and professional level, but how would a congregation practically reconcile this conflict between the classes? Out of all the counter-patron uh, themes throughout 1 Corinthians, Paul juxtaposes Christ to the role of the patron most through the example of the Last Supper. See, Paul uses the supper table as the pragmatic platform to display reconciliation and unity between these classes you know if i were to how many of you have ever thought of the communion table as the place in which you can reconcile socioeconomic you know classes and if i were to pause there for a moment like what would that even look like for number one like the assumption is as you saw in one of the papers that you know communion happened around a meal that was significant right um, rather than the wafer and like a Welch's grape juice, you know, like, but it pragmatically, if that's what he was using as a context for that, and to actually say, I want you to reflect upon whether you have done wrong or think about yourself, it, have, am I taking it in an unworthy manner to think about the fact that taking the communion in an unworthy manner had more to do with whether you are othering people within that in your church um, congregation, rather than thinking about, did I lust tonight? Or did I, uh, you know, did I think a bad thing about this person? It's, we, we totally, you know, make it a conceptual thing, but it's actually in this text. And I'm not saying that communion is only for this, by the way, I'm only saying that this text is about this, right? You know, I, it wasn't about that when Jesus did communion. It wasn't necessarily, unless you want to make a case in a paper there, that he was addressing a particular socioeconomic divide. And that's why he, no, that's not it. But in this text, Paul is doing that. And we need to take note. 
that this is one angle of communion. And this is that text that we use all the time to say, examine yourself, right? And if we're going to use that examining ourselves, it better be in the context that Paul says it in. And if it's going to be other things, then it can be other things. Sure, I don't think it's bad to think about other sins that you're doing as you're taking communion. I, but this text is primarily focused on that, right? And so he does so because inequality is arguably the most visible and reinforced actually around the meal. Whether it be differences in the quality of food, the timing in which the food is served, and the location in which the food is eaten, patrons and slaves would have experienced two different realities. That wraps up another edition of Good Neighbor Podcast. Thank you for listening. Boy, do I sound pretty intense in that lecture, don't I? Uh, poor students, they got to deal with that for three hours straight. Um, you got to pray for them. So next week, I have Rachel Tullock, who will be joining us. Uh, she is from Sanctuary Ministries. She's known to be the theologian in residence there. And she'll be talking about her research that she did in her PhD with regards to uh, food and the Eucharist and uh, the community that she is in and she's going to be sharing how that has just shaped her theology and how that can contribute and just add to what we've been talking about already so i look forward to that and i will see you guys then